Lecture 9 by C.H. Spurgeon Attention Our subject is one which I find scarcely ever noticed in any books upon homiletics. A very curious fact, for it is a most important matter, and worthy of more than one chapter. I suppose the homiletical savans consider that their entire volumes are seasoned with this subject, and that they need not give it to us in lumps, because like sugar in tea... It flavours the whole. That overlooked topic is how to obtain and retain the attention of our hearers. Their attention must be gained or nothing can be done with them, and it must be retained or we may go on word spinning, but no good will come of it. Over the head of military announcements, our English officers always place the word attention in large capitals, and we need some such word over all our sermons. We need the earnest, candid, wakeful, continued attention of those who are in the congregation. If men's minds are wandering far away, they cannot receive the truth, and it is much the same if they are inactive. Sin cannot be taken out of men, as Eve was taken out of the side of Adam, while they are fast asleep. They must be awake, understanding what we are saying and feeling its force, or else we may as well go to sleep too. There are preachers who care very little whether they are attended to or not, so long as they can hold on through the allotted time. It is of very small importance to them whether their people hear for eternity or hear in vain. The sooner such ministers sleep in the churchyard and preach by the verse on their gravestones, the better. Some brethren speak up the ventilator as if they sought the attention of the angels, and others look down upon their book as if they were absorbed in thought or had themselves for an audience, and felt much honoured thereby. Why do not such brethren preach on the prairie and edify the stars? If their preaching has no reference to their hearers, they might do so with evident propriety. If a sermon be a soliloquy, the more lonely the performer, the better. To a rational preacher, and all are not rational, it must seem essential to interest all his audience, from the eldest to the youngest. We ought not to make even children inattentive. Make them inattentive, say you? Who does that? I say that most preachers do. And when children are not quiet in a meeting, it is often as much our fault as theirs. Can you not put in a little story or parable on purpose for the little ones? Can you not catch the eye of the boy in the gallery and the little girl downstairs who have begun to fidget and smile them into order? I often talk with my eyes to the orphan boys at the foot of my pulpit. We want all eyes fixed upon us and all ears open to us. To me it is an annoyance if even a blind man does not look at me with his face. If I see anybody turning round, whispering, nodding or looking at his watch, I judge that I am not up to the mark and must by some means win these minds. Very seldom have I to complain and when I do, my general plan is to complain of myself and own that I have no right to attention unless I know how to command it. Now there are some congregations whose attention you do not readily gain. They do not care to be interested. It is useless to scold them. That will be like throwing a bush at a bird to catch it. The fact is that in most cases there is another person whom you should scold, and that is yourself. It may be their duty to attend, 
but it is far more your duty to make them do so. You must attract the fish to your hook, and if they do not come, you should blame the fishermen and not the fish. Compel them to stand still a while and hear what God the Lord would speak to their souls. The minister who recommended the old lady to take snuff in order to keep from dozing was very properly rebuked by her reply that if he would put more snuff into the sermon, she would be awake enough. We must plentifully cast snuff into the sermon or something yet more awakening. Recollect that to some of our people it is not so easy to be attentive. Many of them are not interested in the matter and they have not felt enough of any gracious operation on their hearts to make them confess that the gospel is of any special value to them. Concerning the Saviour whom you preach, you may say to them, Is it nothing to you, all ye that pass by? Is it nothing to you that Jesus should die? Many of them have through the week been borne down by the press of business cares. They ought to roll their burden on the Lord. But do you always do so? Do you always find it easy to escape from anxieties? Are you able to forget the sick wife and the ailing children at home? There is no doubt whatever that many come into the house of God loaded heavily with the thoughts of their daily avocations. The farmer recollects the fields that are to be ploughed or to be sown. It is a wet Sunday and he is reflecting upon the yellow look of the young wheats. The merchant sees that dishonoured bill fluttering before his eyes and the tradesman counts over his bad debts. I should not wonder if the colours of the ladies' ribbons and the creak of the gentleman's boots disturb many. There are troublesome flies about, you know. Beelzebub, the god of flies, takes care that wherever there is a gospel feast, the guests should be worried with petty annoyances. Often mental mosquitoes sting the man while you are preaching to him, and he is thinking more of trifling distractions than of your discourse. Is it so very wonderful that he does? You must drive the mosquitoes away and secure your people's undistracted thoughts, turning them out of the channel in which they have been running six days into one suitable for the Sabbath. You must have sufficient leverage in your discourse and its subject to lift them right up from the earth to which they cleave and to elevate them a little nearer heaven. Frequently it is very difficult for congregations to attend because of the place and the atmosphere. For instance, if the place is like this room at present, sealed against the pure air, with every window closed, they have enough to do to breathe and cannot think of anything else. When the people have inhaled over and over again the air which has been in other people's lungs, the whole machinery of life gets out of gear, and they are more likely to feel an aching head than a broken heart. The next best thing to the grace of God for a preacher is oxygen. Pray that the windows of heaven may be opened, but begin by opening the windows of your meeting house. Look at many of our country places, and I am afraid our city chapels too, and you will find that the windows are not made to open. The modern barbarous style of building gives us no more ceiling than a barn, and no more openings for ventilation than would be found in an oriental dungeon where the tyrant expected his prisoner to die by inches. What would you think of a house where the windows could not be opened? Would any of you hire such a dwelling? 
Yet Gothic architecture and silly pride make many persons renounce the wholesome sash window for little holes in the ceiling or bird traps in the windows, and so places are made far less comfortable than Nebuchadnezzar's furnace was to Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Provided all such chapels were properly insured, I could not pray for their preservation from fire. Even where the windows will open, they are often kept closed by the month together, and from Sunday to Sunday the impure atmosphere is unchanged. This ought not to be endured. I know some people do not notice such things, and I have heard it remarked that foxes are not killed by the stench of their own holes. But I am not a fox, and bad air makes me dull, and my hearers dull too. A gust of fresh air through the building might be to the people the next best thing to the gospel itself. At least it would put them into a fit frame of mind to receive the truth. Take trouble on weekdays to remove the hindrance arising from foul air. In my former chapel in Park Street, I mentioned to my deacons several times my opinion that the upper panes of the iron-framed windows had better be taken out, as the windows were not made to open. I mentioned this several times, and nothing came of it. But it providentially happened one Monday that somebody removed most of those panes in a masterly manner, almost as well as if they had been taken out by a glazier. There was considerable consternation and much conjecture as to who had committed the crime, and I proposed that a reward of five pounds should be offered for the discovery of the offender, who, when found, should receive the amount as a present. The reward was not forthcoming, and therefore I have not felt it to be my duty to inform against the individual. I trust none of you will suspect me, for if you do I shall have to confess that I have walked with the stick which let the oxygen into that stifling structure. Sometimes the manners of our people are inimical to attention. They are not in the habit of attending. They attend the chapel, but do not attend to the preacher. They are accustomed to look round at everyone who enters the place, and they come in at all times, sometimes with much stamping, squeaking of boots and banging of doors. I was preaching once to a people who continually looked round, and I adopted the expedient of saying, Now, friends, as it is so very interesting to you to know who comes in, and it disturbs me so very much for you to look round, I will, if you like, describe each one as he comes in, so that you may sit and look at me and keep up at least a show of decency. I described one gentleman who came in, who happened to be a friend, whom I could depict without offence, as a very respectable gentleman who had just taken his hat off, and so on. And after that one attempt, I found it was not necessary to describe any more because they felt shocked at what I was doing, and I assured them that I was much more shocked that they should render it necessary for me to reduce their conduct to such an absurdity. It cured them for the time being, and I hope forever, much to their pastor's joy. We will now suppose that this is set right. You have let the foul air out of the place and reformed the manners of the people. What next? In order to get attention, the first golden rule is always to say something worth hearing. Most persons possess an instinct which leads them to desire to hear a good thing. They have a similar instinct also 
which you had better take note of, namely that which prevents their seeing the good of attentively listening to mere words. It is not a severe criticism to say that there are ministers whose words stand in a very large proportion to their thoughts. In fact, their words hide their thoughts, if they have any. They pour out heaps of chaff, and perhaps there may be somewhere or other an oat or two. But it would be hard to say where. Congregations will not long attend to words, 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 words and nothing else. Amongst the commandments, I am not aware of one which runs thus, Thou shalt not be verbose. But it may be comprehended under the command, Thou shalt not steal. For it is a fraud upon your hearers to give them words instead of spiritual food. In the multitude of words there wanteth not sin, even in the best preacher. Give your hearers something which they can treasure up and remember, something likely to be useful to them. The best matter from the best of places, solid doctrine from the divine word. Give them manna fresh from the skies, not the same thing over and over again in the same form ad nauseum, like workhouse bread cut into the same shape all the year round. Give them something striking, something that a man might get up in the middle of the night to hear, and which is worth his walking 50 miles to listen to. You are quite capable of doing that. Do it, brethren. Do it continually, and you will have all the attention you can desire. Let the good matter which you give them be very clearly arranged. There is a great deal in that. It is possible to heap up a vast mass of good things, all in a muddle. Ever since the day I was sent to shop with a basket and purchased a pound of tea, a quarter of a pound of mustard, and three pounds of rice, and on my way home saw a pack of hounds and felt it necessary to follow them over hedge and ditch, as I always did when I was a boy, and found when I reached home that all the goods were amalgamated, tea, mustard, and rice, into one awful mess. I have understood the necessity of packing up my subjects in good stout parcels, bound round with the thread of my discourse, and this makes me keep to firstly, Secondly, and thirdly, however unfashionable that method may now be. People will not drink your mustard tea, nor will they enjoy muddled-up sermons in which you cannot tell head from tail, because they have neither, but are like Mr. Bright's Sky Terrier, whose head and tail were both alike. Put the truth before men in a logical, orderly manner, so that they can easily remember it, and they will the more readily receive it. Be sure, moreover, to speak plainly, because however excellent your matter, if a man does not comprehend it, it can be of no use to him. You might as well have spoken to him in the language of Kamchatka as in your own tongue, if you use phrases that are quite out of his line, and modes of expression which are not suitable to his mind. Go up to his level if he is a poor man. Go down to his understanding if he is an educated person. You smile at my contorting the terms in that manner, but I think there is more going up in being plain to the illiterate than there is in being refined for the polite. At any rate, it is the more difficult of the two, and most like the Saviour's mode of speech. It is wise to walk in a path where your auditors can accompany you, and not to mount the high horse and ride over their heads. 
Our Lord and Master was the King of Preachers, and yet he never was above anybody's comprehension, except so far as the grandeur and glory of his matter were concerned. His words and utterances were such that he spake like the holy child Jesus. Let your hearts indict a good matter, clearly arranged and plainly put, and you are pretty sure to gain the ear, and so the heart. Attend also to your manner of address. Aim at the promotion of attention. And here I should say, as a rule, do not read your sermons. There have been a few readers who have exercised great power, as, for instance, Dr Chalmers, who could not have had a more attentive audience had he been extemporising. But then I do not suppose that we are equal to Dr Chalmers. Men of such eminence may read if they prefer it, but for us there is a more excellent way. The best reading I have ever heard has tasted of paper and is stuck in my throat. I have not relished it, for my digestion is not good enough to dissolve foolscap. It is better to do without the manuscript, even if you are driven to recite. It is best of all if you need neither to recite nor to read. If you must read, mind that you do it to perfection. Be the very best of readers, and you had need to be if you would secure attention. Here let me say, if you would be listened to, do not extemporise in the emphatic sense, for that is as bad as reading, or perhaps worse, unless the manuscript was written extemporaneously, I mean without previous study. Do not go into the pulpit and say the first thing that comes to hand, for the uppermost thing with most men is mere froth. Your people need discourses which have been prayed over and laboriously prepared. People do not want raw food. It must be cooked and made ready for them. We must give out of our very souls in the words which naturally suggest themselves the matter which has been as thoroughly prepared by us as it possibly could have been by a sermon writer. Indeed, it should be even better prepared if we would speak well. The best method is, in my judgment, that in which the man does not extemporise the matter, but extemporises the words. The language comes to him at the moment, but the theme has been well thought out, and like a master in Israel, he speaks of that which he knows and testifies of what he has seen. In order to get attention, make your manner as pleasing as it can possibly be. Do not, for instance, indulge in monotones. Vary your voice continually. Vary your speed as well. Dash as rapidly as a lightning flash and anon travel forward in quiet majesty. Shift your accent, move your emphasis, and avoid sing-song. Vary the tone, use the bass sometimes, and let the thunders roll within. At other times speak as you ought to do generally, from the lips, and let your speech be conversational. Anything for a change. Human nature craves for variety, and God grants it in nature, providence, and grace. Let us have it in sermons also. I shall not, however, dwell much upon this because preachers have been known to arouse and sustain attention by their matter alone when their mode of speech has been very imperfect. If Richard Sibbs, the Puritan, were here this afternoon, I would guarantee him fixed attention to anything he had to say. And yet he stammered dreadfully. One of his contemporaries says he sibilated. He lisped and hissed so much. 
We need not look far for instances in modern pulpits, for there are too many of them. But we may remember that Moses was slow of speech, and yet every ear was attent to his words. Probably Paul also laboured under a similar infirmity, for his speech was said to be contemptible. Of this, however, we are not sure, for it was only the criticism of his enemies. Paul's power in the churches was very great, and yet he was not always able to maintain attention when his sermon was long, for at least one hearer went to sleep under him with serious result. Manner is not everything. Still, if you have gathered good matter, it is a pity to convey it meanly. A king should not ride in a dust cart. The glorious doctrines of grace should not be slovenly delivered. Right royal truths should ride in a chariot of gold. Bring forth the noblest of your milk-white steeds, and let the music sound forth melodiously from the silver trumpets as truth rides through the streets. If people do not attend... Do not let them find excuses in our faulty utterance. If, however, we cannot mend in this respect, let us be the more diligent to make up for it by the richness of our matter. And on all occasions, let us do our very best. As a rule, do not make the introduction too long. It is always a pity to build a great porch to a little house. An excellent Christian woman once heard John Howe and as he took up an hour in his preface, her observation was that the dear good man was so long a time in laying the cloth that she had lost her appetite. She did not think there would be any dinner after all. Spread your table quickly and have done with the clatter of the knives and the plates. You may have seen a certain edition of Doddridge's Rise and Progress of Religion in the Soul with an introductory essay by John Foster. The essay is both bigger and better than the book and deprives Dodderidge of the chance of being read. Is not this preposterous? Avoid this error in your own productions. I prefer to make the introduction of my sermon very like that of the town crier who rings his bell and cries, Oh yes, oh yes, this is to give notice. Merely to let the people know that he has news for them and wants them to listen. To do that, the introduction should have something striking in it. It is well to fire a startling shot as the signal gun to clear the decks for action. Do not start at the full pitch and tension of your mind, but yet in such way that all will be led to expect a good time. Do not make your exordium a pompous introduction into nothing, but a step to something better still. Be alive at the very commencement. In preaching, do not repeat yourselves. I used to hear a divine who had a habit after he had uttered about a dozen sentences of saying, as I have already observed, or I repeat what I before remarked. Well, good soul, as there was nothing particular in what he had said, the repetition only revealed the more clearly the nakedness of the land. If it was very good... And you said it forcibly, why go over it again? And if it was a feeble affair, why exhibit it a second time? Occasionally, of course, the repetition of a few sentences may be very telling. Anything may be good occasionally, and yet be very vicious as a habit. 
Who wonders that people do not listen the first time when they know it is all to come over again? Yet further, do not repeat the same idea over and over again in other words. Let there be something fresh in each sentence. Be not forever hammering away at the same nail. Yours is a large Bible. Permit the people to enjoy its length and breadth. And brethren, do not think it necessary or important every time you preach to give a complete summary of theology or a formal digest of doctrines after the manner of Dr. Gill. Not that I would discredit or speak a word against Dr. Gill. His method is admirable for a body of divinity or a commentary, but not suitable for preaching. I know a divine whose sermons, whenever they are printed, read like theological summaries, more fitted for a classroom than for a pulpit. They fall flat on the public ear. Our hearers do not want the bare bones of technical definition, but meat and flavour. Definitions and differences are all very well, but when they are the staple of a sermon, they remind us of the young man whose discourse was made up of various important distinctions. Upon this performance, an old deacon observed that there was one distinction which he had omitted, namely the distinction between meat and bones. If preachers do not make that distinction, all their other distinctions will not bring them much distinction. In order to maintain attention, avoid being too long. An old preacher used to say to a young man who preached an hour, My dear friend, I do not care what else you preach about, but I wish you would always preach about 40 minutes. We ought seldom to go much beyond that, 40 minutes, or say three quarters of an hour. If a fellow cannot say all he has to say in that time, when will he say it? But somebody said he liked to do justice to his subject. Well, but ought he not to do justice to his people, or at least to have a little mercy upon them and not keep them too long? The subject will not complain of you, but the people will. In some country places, in the afternoon especially, the farmers have to milk their cows, and one farmer bitterly complained to me about a young man, I think from this college. Sir, he ought to have given over at four o'clock, but he kept on till half past. And there were all my cows waiting to be milked. How would he have liked it if he had been a cow? There was a great deal of sense in that question. The Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals ought to have prosecuted that young sinner. How can farmers here to profit when they have cows on the brain? The mother feels morally certain during that extra ten minutes of your sermon that the baby is crying or the fire is out, and she cannot and will not give her heart to your ministrations. You are keeping her ten minutes longer than she bargained for, and she looks upon it as a piece of injustice on your part. There is a kind of moral compact between you and your congregation that you will not weary them more than an hour and a half, and if you keep them longer, it amounts to an infraction of a treaty and a piece of practical dishonesty of which you ought not to be guilty. Brevity is a virtue within the reach of all of us. Do not let us lose the opportunity of gaining the credit which it brings. If you ask me how you may shorten your sermons, I should say study them better. Spend more time in the study 
that you may need less in the pulpit. We are generally longest when we have least to say. A man with a great deal of well-prepared matter will probably not exceed 40 minutes. When he has less to say, he will go on for 50 minutes. And when he has absolutely nothing, he will need an hour to say it in. Attend to these minor things and they will help to retain attention. If you want to have the attention of your people, to have it thoroughly and always, it can only be accomplished by their being led by the Spirit of God into an elevated and devout state of mind. If your people are teachable, prayerful, active, earnest, devout, they will come up to the house of God on purpose to get a blessing. They will take their seats prayerfully, asking God to speak to them through you. They will remain on the watch for every word and will not weary. They will have an appetite for the gospel, for they know the sweetness of the heavenly manner, and they will be eager to gather their appointed portions. No man will ever have a congregation to preach to which surpasses my own in this respect. Indeed, those with whom the preacher is most at home are usually the best hearers for him. It is comparatively easy for me to preach at the tabernacle. My people come on purpose to hear something, and their expectation helps to fulfil itself. If they would hear another preacher with the same expectancy, I believe they would generally be satisfied, though there are exceptions. When the preacher first settles, he cannot expect that his congregation will give him that solemn, earnest attention which those obtain who stand up like fathers among their own children, endeared to their people by a thousand memories and esteemed for age and experience. Our whole life must be such as to add weight to our words, so that in after years we shall be able to wield the invincible eloquence of a long-sustained character and obtain not merely the attention but the affectionate veneration of our flock. If by our prayers and tears and labours our people become spiritually healthy, we shall not fear that we shall lose their attention. A people hungering after righteousness and a minister anxious to feed their souls will act in sweetest harmony with each other when their common theme is the word of the Lord. If you need another direction for winning attention, I should say be interested yourself and you will interest others. There is more in those words than there seems to be, and so I will follow a custom which I just now condemned and repeat the sentence. Be interested yourself, and you will interest other people. Your subject must weigh so much upon your own mind that you dedicate all your faculties at their best to the deliverance of your soul concerning it. And then when your hearers see that the topic has engrossed you, it will by degrees engross them. Do you wonder that people do not attend to a man who does not feel he has anything important to say? Do you wonder that they do not listen with all their ears when a man does not speak with all his heart? Do you marvel that their thoughts ramble to subjects which are real to them when they find that the preacher is wasting time over matters which he treats as if they were fictions. Romaine used to say, it was well to understand the art of preaching, but infinitely better to know the heart of preaching. And in that saying there is no little weight. The heart of preaching, the throwing of the soul into it, 
The earnestness which pleads as for life itself is half the battle as to gaining attention. At the same time, you cannot hold men's minds in rapt attention by mere earnestness if you have nothing to say. People will not stand at their doors forever to hear a fellow beat a drum. They will come out to see what he is at. But when they find that it is much ado about nothing, they will slam the door and go in again, as much as to say, You have taken us in, and we do not like it. Have something to say, and say it earnestly, and the congregation will be at your feet. It may be superfluous to remark that for the mass of our people it is well that there should be a goodly number of illustrations in our discourses. We have the example of our Lord for that, and most of the greatest preachers have abounded in similes, metaphors, allegories and anecdotes. But beware of overdoing this business. I read the other day the diary of a German lady who has been converted from Lutheranism to our faith. And she speaks of a certain village where she lives. There is a mission station here, and young men come down to preach to us. I do not wish to find fault with these young gentlemen, but they tell us a great many very pretty little stories, and I do not think there is much else in what they say. Also, I have heard some of their little stories before, therefore they do not so much interest me as they would do if they would tell us some good doctrine out of the Scriptures. The same thing has no doubt crossed many other minds. Pretty stories are all very well, but it will never do to rely upon them as the great attraction of a sermon. Moreover, take warning concerning certain of these pretty little stories, for their day is over and gone. The poor things are worn threadbare and ought to go into the rag bag. I have heard some of them so many times that I could tell them myself, but there is no need. From stock anecdotes may both ourselves and our hearers be mercifully delivered. Ancient jests sicken us when witlings retail them as their own ideas, and anecdotes to which our great-grandfathers listened have much the same effect upon the mind. Beware of those extremely popular compilations of illustrations which are in every Sunday school teacher's hand, for nobody will thank you for repeating what everybody already knows by heart. If you tell anecdotes, let them have some degree of freshness and originality. Keep your eyes open and gather flowers from the garden and the field with your own hands. They will be far more acceptable than withered specimens borrowed from other men's bouquets, however beautiful those may once have been. Illustrate richly and aptly but not so much with parables imported from foreign sources as with apt similes growing out of the subject itself. Do not, however, think the illustration everything. It is the window, but of what use is the light which it admits if you have nothing for the light to reveal? Garnish your dishes, but remember that the joint is the main point to consider, not the garnishing. Real instruction must be given and solid doctrine taught or you will find your imagery pall upon your hearers, and they will pine for spiritual meat. In your sermons, cultivate what Father Taylor calls the surprise power. There is a great deal of force in that for winning attention. Do not say what everybody expected, he would say. Keep your sentences out of ruts. 
If you have already said, salvation is all of grace, do not always add, and not by human merit, but vary it and say, salvation is all of grace, self-righteousness has not a corner to hide its head in. I fear I cannot recall one of Mr Taylor's sentences so as to do it justice, but it was something like this. Some of you make no advance in the divine life because you go forward a little way and then you float back again. Just like a vessel on a tidal river which goes down with the stream just far enough to be carried back again on the return tide. So you make good progress for a while and then all of a sudden, what did he say? You hitch up in some muddy creek. Did he not also repeat us such a speech to this effect? He felt sure that if they were converted, they would walk uprightly and keep their bullocks out of their neighbour's corn. Occasional resorts to this system of surprise will keep an audience in a state of proper expectancy. I sat last year about this time on the beach at Montan by the Mediterranean Sea. The waves were very gently rising and falling, for there is little or no tide, and the wind was still. The waves crept up languidly, one after another, and I took little heed of them, though they were just at my feet. Suddenly, as if seized with a new passion, the sea sent up one far-reaching billow which drenched me thoroughly. Quiet as I had been before, you can readily conceive how quickly I was on my feet and how speedily my daydreaming ended. I observed to a ministering brother at my side, this shows us how to preach. To wake people up, we must astonish them with something they were not looking for. Brethren, take them at unawares. Let your thunderbolt drop out of a clear sky. When all is calm and bright, let the tempest rush up and by contrast make its terrors all the greater. Remember, however, that nothing will avail if you go to sleep yourself while you are preaching. Is that possible? Oh, possible. It is done every Sunday. Many ministers are more than half asleep all through the sermon. Indeed, they never were awake at any time, and probably never will be, unless a cannon should be fired off near their ear. Tame phrases, hackneyed expressions, and dreary monotones make the staple of their discourses, and they wonder that the people are so drowsy. I confess I do not. A very useful help in securing attention is a pause. Pull up short every now and then, and the passengers on your coach will wake up. The miller goes to sleep while the mill wheels revolve. But if by some means or other the grinding ceases, the good man starts and cries, What now? On a sultry summer's day, if nothing will keep off the drowsy feeling, be very short, sing more than usual, or call on a brother or two to pray. A minister who saw that the people would sleep sat down and observed, I saw you were all resting, and I thought I would rest too. Andrew Fuller had barely commenced a sermon when he saw the people going to sleep. He said, Friends, 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 this won't do. I have thought sometimes when you were asleep that it was my fault, but now you are asleep before I begin, and it must be your fault. Pray wake up and give me an opportunity of doing you some good. Just so. Know how to pause.
Make a point of interjecting, arousing parentheses of quietude. Speech is silver, but silence is golden when hearers are inattentive. Keep on, 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 on with commonplace matter and monotonous tone, and you are rocking the cradle, and deeper slumbers will result. Give the cradle a jerk and sleep will flee. I suggest again that in order to secure attention all through a discourse, we must make the people feel that they have an interest in what we are saying to them. This is in fact a most essential point, because nobody sleeps while he expects to hear something to his advantage. I have heard of some very strange things, but I never did hear of a person going to sleep while a will was being read in which he expected a legacy. Neither have I heard of a prisoner going to sleep while the judge was summing up and his life was hanging in jeopardy. Self-interest quickens attention. Preach upon practical themes, pressing, present, personal matters, and you will secure an earnest hearing. It will be well to prevent attendants traversing the aisles to meddle with gas or candles, or to distribute plates for collections, or to open windows. Deacons and sextons trotting over the place are a torture never to be patiently endured and should be kindly but decidedly requested to suspend their perambulations. Late attendance also needs remedying and our gentlest reasonings and expostulations must be brought to bear upon it. I feel sure that the devil has a hand in many disturbances in the congregation which jar upon our nerves and distract our thoughts the banging of a pew door, the sharp fall of a stick on the floor, or the cry of a child are all convenient means in the hands of the evil one for hindering us in our work. We may therefore very justifiably beg our people to preserve our usefulness from this class of assaults. I gave you a golden rule for securing attention at the commencement, namely always say something worth hearing. I will now give you a diamond rule and conclude. Be yourself clothed with the Spirit of God. And then no question about attention or non-attention will arise. Come fresh from the closet and from communion with God to speak to men for God with all your heart and soul and you must have power over them. You have golden chains in your mouth which will hold them fast. When God speaks, men must listen. And though he may speak through a poor, feeble man like themselves, the majesty of the truth will compel them to regard his voice. Supernatural power must be your reliance. We say to you, perfect yourselves in oratory. Cultivate all the fields of knowledge. Make your sermon mentally and rhetorically all it ought to be. You ought to do no less in such a service. But at the same time, remember, it is not by might nor by power, that men are regenerated or sanctified, but by my Spirit, saith the Lord. Are you not conscious sometimes of being clad with zeal as with a cloak, and filled to the full with the Spirit of God? At such times you have had a hearing people, and ere long a believing people. But if you are not thus endowed with power from on high, you are to them no more than a musician, who plays upon a goodly instrument or sings a sweet song with a clear voice, reaching the ear, but not the heart. If you do not touch the heart, you will soon weary the ear. 
Clothe yourself then with the power of the Spirit of God and preach to men as those who must soon give an account and who desire that their account may not be painful to their people and grievous to themselves, but that it may be to the glory of God. Brethren, may the Lord be with you while you go forth in his name and cry, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. Amen.